A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Wonky Show podcast is on its Christmas break. So as a special treat, we've rolled up season two of the Hidden History of HE into two special box sets. Every week, Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, delves deep into the sector's past to find out how things were and how things came to be. This week in part two, Mike looks at the development of the UK doctorate, the era of university MPs, the regular execution of university chancellors, the origins of public funding for universities, when the VCs met the PM, and a look back at the cats. So with that medieval curriculum that you did your general arts degree first and then you studied um, further to become a, a master so that you went on to teach, it was quite clear that you did that in the general sum of knowledge of mankind in, in, in arts, in, in, in the kind of broader sense of, of what you might know about. What you would then go on and do, if you, if you were interested in this, is study one of the higher faculties. And there were three higher faculties, law, theology and medicine. These are the things that uh, you could only do after you had first taken um, your arts degree. And there's a remnant of that both in, in terms of in the UK, but also in the US. So, for example, at, at Oxford, you now, um, once you've got your MA, uh, you can go on and do a Bachelor in Civil Laws as a postgraduate degree, because that's the beginning stage of, of starting the, the, the work. But the, the most uh, people were aiming for the degree of doctor, and you could only get a degree of the degree of doctor in a higher faculty. There was no, In the UK, there wasn't a tradition of getting a, a higher a doctorate uh, in arts. So slowly these develop um, into uh, um, slightly uh, um, unregulated. Um, the people would come back and do an exercise, submit some work, um, and they would get these higher degrees um, in a lovely red gown. Uh, and that's 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 sort of how those high degrees work. So when the reforming exercise comes um, in the 19th century, and, and Universities are starting to develop different subjects. Uh, they add to these higher degrees, degrees in letters or science, and therefore a higher degree starts on that thing. And there's also a sense that the, that prolonged study that you might do after first having done your degree should be rewarded by some kind of doctorate degree. It's not really a research degree, but it's a kind of way of recognising people might do that. And so there's a sense that we might take uh, the uh, Doctor of Science degree and make it into a, a research degree. But the other tradition, which comes to us um, both directly from Germany but also from the US, is this notion that having done your first general degree, you then specialise. So the Americans, the specialisation in a professional degree comes at the postgraduate level. You don't study undergraduate law, you study it uh, at a uh, postgraduate level. And that's more of a direct inheritor of that medieval course structure. General education first, then specialise in professional education afterwards. But also, they take on the idea that um, a doctorate degree in arts might also be something uh, that we might take forward. Now, the German translation, the German way that they would approach that, is that they describe their arts faculty as the philosophical faculty. So it's a doctorate in philosophy that the Americans take forward. That idea that you would uh, have a doctorate in philosophy, a doctorate in a specialised area of knowledge that wasn't law, theology or medicine. And so Yale first starts um, with that, um, and then there's a development uh, as 
Johns Hopkins University to develop a rigorous training towards the PhD. Uh, and that's that set up. Uh, and so if you want to do further study, you can, if you're an American, you can go to all of these research degrees. Generally, if people want to do that further study, they go to uh, a German university um, to take a, a philosophical degree. Now, all of that shifts um, because with the First World War, no one can go to Germany to take a first uh, up one of these degrees. Uh, and so this forces the issue, forces the issue in the UK two ways. Firstly, there are Americans who want to come to Europe uh, and do further study, and we don't have anything appropriate for them to do. Uh, and that becomes particularly um, clear in the beginning of the 20th century because Rhodes Scholars have been given large amounts of money to come to the UK, but they really want to do more study uh, and they want to have a degree to reward them for that. Um, but also because that extra training of scientists is something that they want to get together. So the UK has a wonderful moment of coherence and organisation uh, and facilitated by the government, actually also the War Office, organises a conference to set up the philosophy degree, that that uh, PhD. And the universities all come, all send delegates, and they set out the requirements so that actually, given that we normally, you know, protesting about autonomy and doing things, we come together in a pool so that the PhD sets off in pretty much the same way across all of the UK universities. Uh, and so it, it goes off. Obviously, there are some quirks, um, Oxford calling it a DPhil rather than a PhD, uh, but actually we, we go off in a, in, a, in a relatively straightforward way because we've come together to deal with uh, a market for doing these things, an opportunity to uh, take forward higher learning, uh, and a, a chance to seal a thunder on our counterparts in Europe. So there we go, a great development in English higher education. Or British higher education. Okay, so I think that one of the meta themes of Wonky is how we get universities and policy stuck together. Yeah, there are whole books published on this now, which are excellent. But the best way you could possibly manage this is for universities to have their own MPs. How much fun would that be? For ages, we had our own MPs. What happened was beginning of um, James the first and sixth's reign um, when he came down from Scotland he wanted to summon a new parliament and the university thought this was a great way of having their own MP so Oxford and Cambridge got themselves organized um, they had a discussion with uh, the king's ministers about what the best thing to do would be so the king's ministers wrote back and said look on the whole we'd be good if you didn't send the vice chancellor send us two people and it went up to the university's governing body to decide who the two members of parliament for the two universities would be and so over time what happened was that that got coalesced so people got to have a vote because they're democratic institutions and so slowly this would become a way of getting to have MPs and they were just normal MPs after a while. They weren't just representing the university. They just did normal things for the university. So they went through a long dis line of distinguished people, but not a very distinguished electoral process because it was just down to the governing body. Everyone who had an MA could vote in it. Um, and therefore, there was an awful lot of what you would have you know, effectively called um, vote rigging. Um, King sending delegates, the chancellor of the university would nominate somebody and it was, you know, woe betide the university didn't send them back. So curiously enough, they had um, one of the university chancellors of Cambridge managed to get his nephew appointed as an MP. Uh, he hadn't actually been to Cambridge, so they had to quickly make him a member of Trinity College so that he could be the MP for Cambridge. Uh, and everything went off quite happily from there. So this continues. Um, uh, there's a mixture of very um, enterprising young men who get picked to do this and sometimes it's safe country gentlemen uh, and this continues happily until you get to uh, the growth of new universities in the 19th century and so the University of London manages to persuade Parliament it should have an MP too uh, and so off they go and they, they set up a convocation to do that the Scots get university MPs as well um, and therefore there's a, a big development of this work mm -hmm. 
Come the First World War, electoral reform is on everyone's mind. And so there's a parliamentary commission, the Speaker's Commission, that sets out what we should do. And the great thing is that they decide to reform the university MPs and they do two key things. Firstly, they let the combined universities, the new modern universities, have their own MP and they let women vote in these elections and stand for them because this is the same uh, piece of legislation that lets women have the, the vote. They have to have a special codicil to allow Oxford and Cambridge uh, graduates because the women aren't allowed to be graduates yet, but they are allowed to stand in the election and, and vote in the election. But in the parliamentary commission, they thought that single transferable votes would be a good idea. So they actually had single transferable votes for MPs for the university constituencies. It was a postal vote. Uh, you got on the register. Um, you're allowed to be on the register of different universities, but you can only vote once in a university constituency. And it was good student union style single transferable votes. And for uh, the period between... 1918 and 1948, we had single transferable vote, proportional representation in the UK Parliament, but only for these university constituencies. Now, some of the people were quite distinguished who did this. There was a particularly um, impressive woman who became uh, the MP for the combined universities, Eleanor Rathbone. She did all sorts of reforming things. Uh, but on the whole, there was a mixture between party political people. They weren't too independent. So, come the Second World War, the Labour Party comes into power, uh, they start to implement another Speaker's Commission after that, and they decide to go completely against pluralism. So they drop it. And there's a great exchange in Parliament with Winston Churchill, sounding a bit like Boris Johnson, definitely laying into the Socialist Party for this terrible breach of all this historical precedent of how they'd had these wonderful people who'd been MPs uh, for the universities, uh, and it should continue. And Churchill swears that he will bring it back in uh, when he gets back into power. So the Labour Party get rid of it. In the 1950 election, there are no university MPs. But, strangely enough, it never gets back on the statute. We do not have university MPs. Plenty of people might think of themselves as a university MP representing a uh, university constituency. But we would have had a separate vote as graduates for our own MPs. Um, an opportunity that no doubt um, we could try and press for in the future. Get that policy decision back into our education. Let's have our own MPs. Everyone who works in a university or is a student in a university at some point comes across a grand figure, the university chancellor, um, dressed in a gold lame um, outfit, um, shaking hands occasionally at a graduation ceremony. Um, but this is actually one of the oldest posts we have in universities, one of the remnants of the original setup when the first universities emerged. In Northern European universities, which had a kind of clerical link, we taught theology before we taught anything else, uh, they were diocesan officer. Someone of the, the cathedral had a chancellor, uh, and the chancellor was the person in charge of the registers. So uh, the universities first linked up to the diocese uh, and their chancellor. But one of the early rights that the early universities got was to appoint their own chancellors. And from that point on, the chief officer of the university, the chancellor, was appointed by the university, often on a short-term uh, period, and that continues uh, quite happily up until the early 1500s. At which point, John Fisher, Bishop John Fisher, um, is an excellent chancellor, and they, they keep him on for quite a long time and eventually appoint him for life. He's very active in the university, he's president of a college, he organises great benefactions through Lady Margaret, um, uh, everything gets you know, properly organised and he gets permanently appointed. But he's also one of those chancellors that sets a little bit of a pattern in the 16th century, because of course he's um, executed for treason, which is not exactly what you, you want from your chancellor. Um, 
Cambridge, therefore, becomes the, the ultimate in bad luck symbols for um, getting this appointment. Because in succession, Thomas Cromwell, Edward Seymour, John Dudley and Robert Devereux, so that's the Duke of Somerset, Duke of Northumberland, Earl of Essex, they all get executed as well. They're all made Chancellor of the University of Cambridge and they all get ex- executed because they've decided that what they really want is a, is a man of great influence at court to play for the university's role. So in the uh, 16th century, that comes with some dangers, um, mostly that you get yourself um, executed. Oxford gets luckier. Um, most of its people do not get ex- executed uh, until it gets to the 17th century. It gets unlucky then. Um, so it appoints, in the same kind of vein as uh, Bishop John Fisher, um, William Lord. Uh, Lord is uh, a former president of a college, uh, St John's. He's a reforming chancellor of the university. He brings in a whole new set of statutes for the university, and he's charged with treason and executed by Parliament. Uh, now, obviously, in order to balance this out, the, the next person, after a while they get, is Oliver Cromwell to be the Chancellor. Uh, obviously, he's not executed for treason, uh, but he is posthumously executed for treason uh, to, to make up for it. So this goes backwards and forwards between the universities. So Cambridge uh, has the Duke of Monmouth. Uh, He gets executed for treason. Um, Oxford has uh, Edward Hyde, the um, Earl of Clarendon, uh, who is exiled. Um, uh, Lots of things about whether his uh, behaviour is treasonable or not. Good thing about him being exiled is he writes his history of the rebellion, which earns so much money for the university press. It can afford a swanky new building built by uh, Nicholas Hawksmoor and a fund that continues to this day to fund scholarships. So for them, you know, that, that worked out nicely. Um, but you go backwards and forth. The second Duke of Ormond, he's sent into exile for treason, um, and it goes on in this vein. So this idea of having great men uh, to be a university chancellor doesn't always work out. The Scots have chancellors as well, uh, and a particularly interesting pattern that Glasgow manages to have four successive Dukes of Montrose, um, father and son and grandson and grandson, uh, and therefore for 160 years the chancellorship is in one family as it passes through until this is all reformed in the the late uh, 19th century. Modern universities at the end of that period also jump into this thing and uh, there's a great collection of dukes and earls and marquises that become chancellors of the universities. Um, you know, if you, if you go into the, the buildings, they're great portraits of these Victorians with their huge beards uh, sit on the walls, all in their in their medals and uh, looking like every inch of the late Victorian um, aristocracy that they are. So. We've now settled to an actually much more sensible pattern. Our uh, chancellors aren't expected to be necessarily great statesmen uh, or women. Uh, some of them are. Some of them are more interesting kind of backgrounds. Uh, the last kind of key... Uh, uh, shift on those things is should your chancellor be a political figure so I was interested that um, Shami Chakrabarti stood down as the uh, chancellor of the University of Essex because she joined the shadow cabinet we don't want to have a political figure um, as our chancellor uh, at which point they appoint John Burko um, who's slightly political in the last couple of years but Essex seems to have got away with that um, there's a great set of uh, Pathé newsreels of Winston Churchill turning up at the University of Bristol in 1929 to become the their chancellor and the students lifting him aloft and carrying him through the streets uh, in a great celebration as he becomes their chancellor again a hugely political figure then uh, stays uh, entirely inside uh, politics uh, so you can have your chancellor and be a prime minister not sure how many people are going to be choosing current members of the cabinet to be uh, their chancellors just yet though how did we end up with a system whereby the government pays for higher education 
war used to pay for higher education depending on, on how policy may have shaken out in the general election um, one of the key triggers for this is the first world war where universities are very useful to the state they help in making munitions and they help with you know, textiles work and develop sonar and all sorts of things but there's a huge meeting organised which happens 12 days after the armistice in uh, 1918, whereby 67 people come in from universities to meet the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the President of the Board of Trade to talk about the next stage of university funding and to make the case for there being proper funding for universities. Uh, and they sit there uh, and they, they have great speeches made and there are lovely minutes of these things of this deputation to the Board of Education uh, by all these university vice-chancellors. Uh, and they make clear po- notes. So, for example, uh, 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 Sir Thomas Ackland notes that um, uh, the government's been spending something like £67 million a day on fighting the war. Surely it could find £2 million a year to support universities. So you've got a mixture of people in the room. So you've still got what are self-declared modern universities. So the principal of the University of Birmingham speaks first, uh, and he decide you know, he, he focuses on that professors should be paid more money, uh, and therefore, uh, and this is important because it also enable the university to throw its doors open to a wider class of the community, uh, and then they talk about how the new PhDs are going to work and how they will develop research uh, work, uh, and he talks happily about not just doubling the university grant but quadrupling it because it is it's supposed to be doubled in 1915. Uh, and then there's a succession of people who talk about uh, the effect that universities have in, in boosting the nation. Um, and then there's a, uh, uh, the Vice-Chancellor of the National University of Ireland, Sir Bertram Windle, uh, who sounds like a character from a Terry Pratchett book. But Sir Bertram Windle, uh, he talks about um, how German education uh, had suffered so badly um, and that British, uni- British education was so much better and worth supporting by, by the government. Uh, they talk about the opportunities that, that, that science had done during the war uh, and they talk about how much science they'd done and how they could fight submarines much better if they, you know, universities were better funded. Uh, and then finally, Andrew Bonalore, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, makes a cautious reply. How unusual. Uh, a cautious reply from the man in charge of the money. And he says, well, we'll have, we'll have a think about this, uh, but we should uh, desire that the university should extend right down to the very bottom of our social system. Uh, it's a great access statement uh, there. Uh, and then finally joined by um, H.A.L. Fisher, who's president of the Board of Education, who's been a vice-chancellor himself. Uh, and he sets off, and the minutes record the, the reaction to his little speech at the end. I'm convinced, and my conviction has been deepened by the impressive mass of testimony which I've heard today, of the necessity of a very much more liberal assistance from the state to higher learning in the country. Cheers, it says in the notes. Uh, and I'm equally convinced from my long connection with universities of the great value of preserving university autonomy. Cheers, it says again. So obviously they were very happy with uh, Fisher's response, uh, and off they go. So we get all the mechanisms that we then run for the next year. We get the University Grants Committee, the Haldane Principle, the funds that come in place. Slowly there's a, a much more in the way of grants for students, particularly if they're going to do teacher training. Uh, and so it comes from that grand meeting with these 67 uh, people, 66 of whom were men, uh, um, sat in this room uh, saying why universities should be funded by the state. So records do show sometimes um, the depth of policy interaction between government and higher education. One of those opportunities is when uh, vice-chancellors go to see the Prime Minister. 
Now, in the late 60s, vice-chancellors were summoned in to see the Prime Minister because their students were so revolting um, that the Prime Minister had to share secret intelligence with them from the security services um, about the, the behaviour and, and get them to, to behave themselves. Uh, sadly, I couldn't find the notes of that meeting, but I did find the notes of the meeting that Ted Heath had with a group of vice-chancellors in 1973. And he'd widened the group, so not only did he see vice-chancellors, he saw directors of polytechnics as well, because they'd come into being and Margaret Thatcher had not killed them off in her white paper, and so they were going strong. And the file is lovely because it contains the briefing notes for the ministers in advance of the, of the setup, and it contains the, the, the record of what happened at the meeting. So the briefing notes are, are cheery, because they set out for the Prime Minister what's going on. Um, the vice-chancellors are concerned that the government doesn't love them, um, doesn't consider them relevant enough. So so says the, uh, the briefing note. However, the polytechnics are in good heart. They have their preoccupations. Um, they want to have the clarification of their role with the local authority um, sorted out uh, and that they're going to um, be quite happy with the uh, massive expansion, trebling, of their student numbers following the white paper. They're up for this, the polytechnic directors. There aren't many notes on the Polytechnic Directors, but there's this great section whereby each of the Vice-Chancellors has a little note given to Ted Heath to explain who they are uh, and what kind of character they have. So it sets out in, in, in some detail. So Alan Bullock, who's the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford at the time, is a distinguished modern historian, in manner very much the Oxford Yorkshireman, plain-spoken, witty and humane. Um, the first four-year Oxford Vice-Chancellor with a year to serve. Um, Dr. Morrison of Bristol is described as one of the younger vice-chancellors, 48, vigorous and open-minded as well as very intelligent. Professor Armitage of Manchester is a very resourceful man with an excellent judgment which he chooses to conceal under a bumbling manner. The notes go on explaining what Ted can expect from each of the vice-chancellors in front of him. And clearly the, the evening goes well, they have a discussion, and it focuses on the key issue of whether universities should be providing thinkers or doers. And the representatives of the polytechnics argue that the major mistake made by universities was to value knowledge for the sake of knowledge. The great majority of graduates pursue their careers in the world of action, not of reflection. And this basic fact should be reflected in university entrance requirements and in final examinations. I'm still waiting for that. Um, at present, the university's approach was too scholastic. So, they set themselves up in opposition. They are the relevant um, institutions providing people with a way into work. And Ted Heath um, sums up, and there's a note uh, picking up, that Heath is critical of the universities who too often fail to teach their students to think straight, to recognise quality, and without a thorough training in the basic intellectual processes, the next generation would need to find themselves to compete. And here's a great example of why we'd need that. To argue the British case successfully in, for example, Paris or Brussels, would call for the highest standards of intellect and ability. At the same time, the education system had a major part in creating a more flexible social structure in the country, so that ability, wherever it might be found, could be developed and exploited to the full. Heath wants the universities to help us in our new mission to be in Europe. Um, so, not sure how that's going to turn out, but there we go. Um, that's, that's what universities should really help to do. So Heath, of course, doesn't last long, but Margaret Thatcher is the Secretary of State and she's there and she listens to all of this and obviously participates in the discussion. And when you when she gets into power, you can see that distinction between the, the universities um, and their um, two academic and the polytechnics who are keen to do the work that the government wants to do. And eventually that wins them their freedom uh, at the end of the binary line. In the 2017 Conservative Manifesto, there was an interesting development whereby we saw uh, the proposal for 
new um, institutes of technology. Uh, and these, described in the proposal back then, were to have Regis professors and uh, have degree awarding powers and to, and to be very grand places. I'm not sure that we've quite got to that stage with the Institutes of Technology yet. But they look rather similar to another proposal from a Conservative government, uh, but in this case, 50 years earlier. The College's Advanced Technology were a way of pulling out from the succession of regional uh, colleges of technology um, a group that would be advanced and would do higher level work. And so David Eccles, uh, who was the Education Minister, presents a, a white paper on technical education in 1956, which says that all of the work in technical education, or a bulk of it, should be concentrated in a small number of colleges. The rationale was so that they built up sufficient critical mass uh, and that students would, would need to go to them. And if the technical colleges would each have a, a specialisation that they could work to uh, and that people would you know, coalesce around them. So all pretty similar to where we are now in terms of the development of the Institute's technology technology. And these are very f familiar places. So the white paper sets out the kinds of places that might become them. And so the Acton Technical College becomes the Brunel College of Advanced Technology, which becomes Brunel University. And so we go through this process of, of seeing how those places develop. Now, some of them who were on the original list in the white paper don't get to be colleges of advanced technology. So that um, the Leicester College of Technology and Commerce doesn't come through, it doesn't get to be a cat, uh, but of course it eventually becomes Dumont University. So those developments happen over time uh, and we, we see that. Now obviously this gives some of those universities a, a head start. These are universities that have chancellors and uh, they have charters and they, they've had uh, they have got 25 years of UGC funding rather than the other places that they had um, but sometimes this didn't work out for them at all. So one of the places that actually became a College of Advanced Technology, Chelsea, um, uh, Although it was destined to move to St Albans, it never did. Um, it, it fell through in its negotiations and then merged with King's College and, and all traces of it have effectively vanished. Um, obviously, graduates of it won't appreciate that, but effectively it, it, it's vanished. It's one of those places that's now closed. So the CATs themselves developed some very important things which actually become features of the rest of the sector. Firstly, they weren't given their own degree awarding powers. They had to work for a Council for Technological Awards, which set a new form of qualification that they would all have, the Diploma of Technology. This was to be a degree standard and with the same official standing, but it would have a, a kind of pattern that they would all adhere to. The key thing was that it would have a sandwich approach. Every student would go out and do a work placement that was a mandatory part of the course. But it also have other distinctive features such as a liberal studies programme. So all the students had to do humanities and other studies alongside it. So those things uh, set off in their way. Um, and clearly, these are the challenger institutions of their time. Picked by government to advance a technological mission, um, they, they continue uh, to develop that work. What happens to them, of course, is that by the time Robbins comes along, Robbins decides they should all become technological universities, or he says they might become faculties of technological universities next door, uh, because quite often they're in the same city. So there's then a process whereby they become universities, and some of them go through a further transformation at that point. So uh, that what had been at Borough um, uh, moves out uh, and becomes uh, the uh, University of Surrey, and what had been in Bristol, the Virtual Ventures College, moves out to Bath and becomes the University of Bath, but they become technical, technological universities, uh, and they proceed happily in a different direction, although they've all now quietly dropped the technological university tag, um, but that's that's where they all come from, that, that early boost of we shall have colleges of advanced technology, um, but they've all become wonderful and fine universities. <laughs> <laughs>